Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Victoria Benyon, and the founder of the Victoria Benyon Podcast Booking Agency. And you're listening to The Best Guest, the podcast for business owners, creatives, and entrepreneurs who want to harness the power of podcasts to grow their platforms and increase their visibility. We're here to support you on your journey, bringing you actionable tips with each episode. Now, let's begin. Hello, Danae. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? I am well, and thank you for having me, Victoria. I'm really glad you could be here today. Now, you are the co-founder and CEO of Valor, which is the UK's first legal platform for employees. Prior to Valor, you worked in and helped scale startups. I'm curious, when in your career did you realize there was a need for a service like Valor? Pretty early on in my career, I started seeing other women and um, people from marginalized backgrounds getting, you know, the short end of situations at work. But I didn't hadn't thought at that point that, you know, I might be able to try and be part of the solution beyond just supporting that person. And I kind of, I guess, developed a reputation for helping people through tough things like that. I'm I'm a bit of an Oprah, if that makes sense. (laughs) I like to help people and um, really hate hate seeing people go through stuff like that and then when I met Kate um she and I were very similar in that respect and then we would find ourselves talking about how you know can you believe that this happened you know what can we do to help her you know we've you know often you know referred people to get new jobs so that they could leave a bad workplace things like that and and then that turned into a wider conversation between the two of us about you know well is there anything that we could do as a result of this and I think when it um became quite a pointed conversation was when we started experiencing some problems ourselves at the same time. And then we had that firsthand experience as well as those, you know, stories that we've been seeing. And we were like, my God, this is terrible. I'm really starting to understand what the problem is, but I have no idea why this has to be a problem. And of course that made us very angry, anger based company and product development. (laughs) That's how that started. So obviously you've got a lot of experience that you you could bring to starting a new company. You've been involved in free agent and care sourcer, run award-winning campaigns, raising equity. So how has that kind of helped you with Fala? I I was very undeliberate about my career for the first part of it. I learned how to code when I was a teenager and then just ended up building websites and became a software developer during my my kind of like college years. I freelanced and I ended up getting a job in electronic government. And then I got a job at a financial startup and I kind of like moved my way accidentally into a webmaster role. And then suddenly I was a marketer who built websites. And um, so, yeah, a very undeliberate first half, but I was always in scaling startups. Pretty much as soon as I came to the UK, which was just after college, I had found my way in startups. The first one I joined, I joined a company of six people that got acquired. That grew to about 150 people. And then that got acquired by a company of about 2000 people. (laughs) Got a real sense of scaling and Then as I went into free agent, I started to become a lot more deliberate about my career and I started free agent scaled a lot as well. Um, And I had more of a hand in that scaling. I started to lead teams, you know, grew from about 20 people when I joined at free agent to about 150 when I left. And I got to build those teams and help them, help them kind of grow and understand all those growing pains. I realized, you know, in that period that I started to 
have a lot of opinions about you know what good looks like and what pitfalls you might want to watch out for I really wanted to have a seat at the big table I really wanted to be those executive meetings where they were making the decisions that I was implementing as a middle manager at that point and there was you know no room at free agent for me at the executive table and so I said okay no I I want to grow build and grow companies and so now I'm going to be very deliberate about the second part of my career I'm going to find the next jobs that's going to give me the experience that allows me to build my own company or you know as a CEO of a company and, and go on that scaling journey so I, I chose my next roles very carefully to give me more board experience more executive experience that's how I got to the point where I felt like I could bring some more experience to starting from scratch with that said my co-founder Kate she has built companies from scratch before. She is a fantastic co-founder. She has done my job before. And she's like, you can go do that. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to build the product. <laughs> That's brilliant. What a combination. She's very happy with the arrangement, yes. <laughs> so you mentioned pitfalls. What pitfalls do you see people making when they're trying to scale a startup? There are so many pitfalls that you can have. And you kind of, some of them you just know you're going to fall into because you don't have a lot of choice at the time, but there are definitely some things you can avoid. I think a lot of this is about mindset. So when you're growing a company that's early stage, if there's a lot still of uncertainty around you know, your business model, do you have product market fit yet? Things like that. What's easy to try and do is to try and like bring in a, a rock star kind of employee who you know can solve all your problems and you, you can uh, you can feel this massive temptation because you're so overwhelmed with everything to um, cede control of a lot of your business to a rock star who's gonna you know who's done it before and can do it again. And I have never really seen that go well <laughs> for a few different reasons. One is if you're a founder in an early stage company you have to be close to the coal face. You have to be close to your customers. You can't outsource things that traditionally get outsourced to rock stars like sales and marketing and stuff. You can have them forward, but they need to work with you because you have, you're the only one that has that broad picture of the whole market, the whole product, everything else to synthesize all of that into the business that needs to be built. You can't give away that um, access to users. And the other thing is I really just genuinely think we as a, community as a culture prioritize people who have done things before over people who are capable of innovating through a lot of uncertainty. Often the success that people have when they have done it before is very hard to map one particular scenario to another, especially now that you know there are so many different factors that change all the time. If you find people who are capable of working their way through very complex issues in an uncertain environment, and they can innovate and learn quickly through that, then it doesn't matter really what they've done before because it's their process that you're hiring. It's their mindset that you're hiring. And one of the key things I've learned is that, again, that's not an individual thing. The, the smallest unit that we should really be thinking about when we're thinking about innovating through uncertainty is a team. It's very hard for one person to, be able to cover all those angles. So when I, when I see companies scale and when I see them put a lot of emphasis on one person, 
who like they're expecting to overperform versus focusing on process, innovation and collaboration within a team. I'm thinking, oh, I'm not sure that's going to work for you. What do you look for when you're putting together a team? Do you look for certain kind of personality types, skill sets? How do you put that together? Yeah, this is one of my favorite parts of uh, running a business. I just love this part. I love the human side of it. So a lot of it is around figuring out which skill sets you have in the company already or that team already, and then finding the contrasts to that and finding who works together. So I'll give you an example. I am the classic CEO. I am the ideas person. I'm the kind of big energy creator, go-getter, all that kind of stuff. I do not follow through very well. I'm not great at sitting down and mapping out a process and all that kind of stuff. So often I immediately try and find, and my co-founder is the perfect kind of balance to that. So as a little mini team, we complement each other very well. It creates tension and it creates friction, but it's healthy tension and healthy friction because you're balancing out, oh, I know you're going to say this, but what about this? And you get to a better place. And so when I think about larger teams, I do the same kind of thing. I think, what does this project need? What skill sets do we have already? And then what perspective skill sets, lived experience do we still need to bring into the team to create that healthy tension, that balance to make sure that we are really covering all the bases. So you have quite a lot of experience with getting investors for companies, I believe. And at Valor, you've got 73% female investors and 33% of people with colour. So how do you go about seeking investors and how did you achieve this balance? I got involved in investment or I've been involved in some investment stuff before Vala, but not to any massive degree. I did I did work at Free Agent on their equity crowdfunding campaign, which was massively additional, um, going out onto um, Cedars and uh, raising 1.2 million, largely from our own customer base, which was really fascinating and learned a lot about crowdfunding there and did a few other pieces, got involved with a series A and a seed round, but this Vala was the first time that I actually led around did it myself. And I have learned so much from doing that. Because <laughs> when I started, I think it's fair to say, even with that, you know, that other experience, I was a babe in the woods. And it's it's a, it's such a different world. And there's a lot of lingo and a lot of practices and things. Some of the key takeaways I've had is learn the lingo. There's a fantastic book called Venture Deals. That essentially just teaches you all the lingo, which is super helpful. Teaches you the motivations of venture capitalists, the angels, the differences between the two, what good looks like to them and how you can fit into their world, how to evaluate whether or not your business does fit into their world. I think that's step one. And then in terms of actually raising the money, two things that I really learned. One is run a very tight process. And I actually went on a boot camp called Fundraising Boot Camp, which I would highly recommend. They are so talented. And they taught us how to, you know, treat it like a pipeline, like any other sales. I have a spreadsheet of nearly 100 investors that I have categorized, prioritized, and moving through the list and working through a process with them. So I have a clear pipeline. But probably the number one thing when it comes to raising investment is networking. Networking and introduction. So cold approaching investors is getting easier. In my experience, it's easier in 2022 than it was in 2020. But in general, if you want 
to really be taken seriously by a venture capital fund, you need to be introduced to them. That's called warm intros. And I wish it wasn't like that, but it is. And for someone from kind of the outside, for a woman who doesn't have, you know, the same kind of networks as some of the men, because men are largely venture capitalists, that means a lot of work to build up your network so that you can get those introductions. So yeah, intro like, Networking is my number one job. <laughs> How do you go about networking? Do you mean attending events? What does your networking look like? I love that question because I think when we hear networking, we think about events and things like that. And to me, it's very different. There's a few formal things that I've done. Uh, there's a, a website called Lunch Club that is really interesting. And that is like speed dating networking where you you create a few slots in your diary and then they match you to people who you might be interested in talking to and so every week you just get a new person or you can do two or whatever and I've got some friends who are like really incredible networkers and they take two or three of those calls a week like I don't know how to do it it's so impressive um yeah there is some formality to it uh, typically my networking looks like you know, friends of friends will say, hey, someone's doing this. Do you have any experience with it? And me answering their question and then finding out more about them and then keeping a connection there or vice versa. I'll say, you know, I'm looking for someone who can, you know, answer some questions about this. And then we talk a little bit about businesses and then we stay in touch. I love peer mentoring and I love kind of informal mentoring as well. So like going to other CEOs you know, going and talking to people who you probably wouldn't think would reply back to you, but, you know, saying, hi, you know, I'd really love to just ask you a few questions about how you started your business or, you know, I'm, I'm in this sector and I would really love to know how you think about X. People reply back and they're really happy to give their time and answer some questions. And then you, you know, you can just decide how much you want to keep that relationship alive. So, yeah, typically it's, it's um, a lot more organic than events. Do you yeah. make sure that you dedicate a certain amount of your time to networking a week? I would love to say that I, I carve out time for it. I'm not, um, I'm not a very structured when it comes to time like that. It seemed to be a bit more spontaneous. I would say that I probably spend about half a day a week minimum or something like that on networking when I'm outside of fundraising and stuff. I spent a period of about when I realized that I wanted to run a company and when I started planning my career, I spent about two years just making networking my job. I went to every single trade event that I could find. Like if anybody invited me to anything, the opening of an envelope, I was there. <laughs> That's really good practice, I think. Yeah, totally. And it's exhausting if you keep doing it. But um, I think investing in it for a certain amount of time, I think it kind of jump starts your network and then it can happen a lot after that. Yes, yes, people have to know you're there, don't they, in the first place. So with the balance of the investors that you got for Valor, why did you feel that was important? Yeah, it's a huge, huge part of why we exist and how we think we're going to succeed. Kate and I, we are building Valor first for marginalized people. And when I say marginalized, I mean everything from all women, unfortunately, to you know members of the LGBTQ plus community, and um, people with disabilities. We know that if we build Vala to support those people who have the highest need right now, if we prioritize them and their needs, then it's going to be pretty trivial to then move to mass market because you know the um, most acute needs are taken care of first. But in order to actually 
do that well, we need to have representation of those communities at every level of our company. And so that includes the investors. So we, um, I've spent a lot of time networking people who I thought would help me get access to the communities that I would really like to raise investment from. Sometimes that looks like, okay, well, where do we want to spend our money in terms of where it comes to advisors or who do we want to try and recruit to advise us? Because then they will become part of our network and can introduce us to more people. So, you know, being deliberate about your suppliers, your advisors, the people contract that's a great way to network into other communities to make sure that you're um, you're broadening out the access and and also there are a lot of funds specific for um, women or um, people of color my co-founder Kate's from Hong Kong so you can go to them and start building relationships with those funds early on and then you know build a relationship and eventually you know hopefully they'll invest excellent what's your setup like do you work virtually do you have a physical office space we are 100% remote. There are six of us. Actually, most of us are in Edinburgh, I think, um, just because through hiring. But yeah, all 100% remote. I think in the future, we could have an office. But for now, we, we have occasional meetups, shops and things like that. <laughs> Where do you feel there was like a gap that needed filling with Vala? That's, that's a great question. And this is something that Kate and I have literally spent three years deciding, figuring out, exploring. Where we see the gap is this horribly huge squeezed middle of people who earn too much to be able to afford completely free legal support, which even then there's not a lot of resources available to people and earn too little. And I would put that roughly at earn less than 50,000 pounds a year to be able to afford a lawyer to really support them. And even then, even at that salary, there's a lot of um, a lot of expense because when we're thinking about an employment issue or any kind of issue, family, immigration, you're looking at thousands of pounds minimum. You know, we estimate five thousand pounds minimum to resolve an issue. A lot of this has changed because legal aid was cut in um, I think it was 2013. And so what you're seeing is this massive increase of people who have they found themselves faced with the choice of drop it or have to represent themselves because they just can't afford the legal support. And in employment tribunals alone, there was a 253% increase just over two or three years of people who chose to represent themselves. And so that's where we're starting. We're saying, okay, they have no tools built for them. They don't have any resources available to them. They don't have like a a research catalog, they have nothing. So why don't we pool for people who are representing themselves, help them resolve their issues. And then we can, you know, we can layer on more affordable options over time to reach more and more people. But let's start at that lowest layer of affordability so that, you know, these people have something that they can work with in this, you know, really tricky time. Yeah, there's absolutely a need for your services. You can see that when people are experiencing problems at work often they'll think well I can't afford to do that so I'll leave I'll find another job yeah and and I just want everyone to know that's so often not the case you can often resolve the issue internally especially if you know about how to use the process how to write those first letters how to really understand your leverage with your employer and then it's absolutely not the case that you have to have a lawyer to go to tribunal if it gets to that that's really useful to know So how do you think it's important to look after your own employees? How can we make sure that we're not these bad employers? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And I think sometimes when I um, talk about what we do, I can make other employers feel really uncomfortable. Like, oh, no, am I the bad guy? <laughs> and I would reassure people to say, you know, that, you know, if you're asking yourself the question, you're probably in pretty good shape. With that said, um, though, you can imagine how seriously we take it at Vala. Um, we want to ensure that we're modeling inclusive compassionate um, employer behavior. A few different ways that we think about that. One is we focus a lot on this concept of psychological safety. This was some research done that's written out in a book called The Fearless Organization, which I would recommend any manager or employer to read. It's so helpful. Generally, what this book talks about is that the highest performing teams, and they've done tons of research around this, the highest performing teams are the teams that feel comfortable sharing their mistakes with each other without worrying that they're going to be punished for bringing up something negative. Like bringing up issues is almost like the raw material of innovation. And so if you can build a culture that celebrates that, uses it, like triages those problems, then you can build an incredibly high performing team. But that kind of a culture, you know, then you can see how that brings on one, you have to be very accepting of negativity or stop even thinking about it as negativity you also need a very inclusive diverse culture so people can feel like they can bring their own perspective um, to an issue rather than feeling like they have to think like everyone else so i think i think psychological safety is a, a fantastic place to start we really really focus on as you can imagine is diversity and inclusion and again for us that is not just a social reason, but it's a it's a good business reason as well. Like there have been countless studies that show the more representation you have in a company, the higher performing that company. And the really interesting thing about that is it's not because it's not because it feels good. In fact, it's because it creates friction. Because when you bring together a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds, you create a lot of friction because they have to communicate with each other and they don't all, they can't all read each other's minds like, you know, a small group of people from the same background. And with that friction comes improved communication, improved innovation. Like you learn to work through all of this healthy friction and therefore become a higher performing team and higher performing company. So it's a double-edged thing. It's very important from a moral and ethical perspective, but it's also just good, great business basically. Thank you so much for sharing all your expertise today. It's been really great to talk to you again. Where can listeners go to connect with you and learn more about Valor? So I would love to hear from any business owners, any managers, anybody really on LinkedIn. It's the best place to reach me. You can just search for my name, Danae Shell. It's a pretty unique one, so you'll find me. And if you want to learn more about Vala, we are at vala.uk. That's V-A-L-L-A dot U-K. You know, if someone's going through something difficult and they need some help, that is absolutely the URL to send them. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. I'll put links to everything in the show notes as well so people can just click through to you. Thank you so much, Danae. Visit www.victoriabenyon.com to book a free podcast guesting strategy session with one of our team. Using the information you provide when you book, we'll get to know you and your business better so you get the most value from your strategy call.
You will come away from this 30-minute session with huge value. We'll share our top tips for being a podcast guest and up to five suggestions of perfect fit podcasts you can approach. Thank you so much for listening to the Best Guest Podcast today. I'll talk to you again in the next episode.